All right, if you want to stand as we read from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Good job. Good job. All right, everybody. How's it going? Are we good? Today uh, is week two of a sermon series we're calling A Visible Kingdom. A Visible Kingdom. Uh, This series is all about how the church is called to be a visible manifestation of the kingdom of God in the world. So last week we talked all about uh, how it is our shared life together, the life we share together as a community of Jesus followers, that is probably the most profound witness to the world of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And today, uh, in honor of our missionary guests and the theme of their ministry, but also because this was on my list and I just had to move things around and fit it in today, uh, we are going to talk about a spirituality of food and the table. How's that sound? Um, we, uh, basically, we're going to talk about all the ways that we're supposed to eat together as Christians, and this will be good. Uh, you heard me right. We're supposed to eat together, all right? The church is called to be a body that shares life together at the table, at the table. Now, I know we're in a, we're in a COVID time, and there's some caveats to all of that, and I will give that caveat at the end of service, but just roll with me here this morning, all right? Uh, And I think what we're going to find this morning is that for the early church, the table, this place of gathering and eating, became a place where they, as followers of Jesus, put on display the kingdom of God. They, They showed in that place, they showed the world what God was like and what the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated is all about. You know, in the Bible itself, food plays a really, really important role. Actually, a significantly important role. Now, admittedly, the very first instance of eating in the Bible is not a great one, right? It's Adam and Eve and the, and, and the fruit and all of that. Um, it's not great. But as you continue in the Bible, food plays a central role. The entirety of the sacrificial system and most of the, most of the laws of the Old Testament are about, well, eating and how one should eat. In the, in, this, in the Old Testament itself, there was a number of holy days and holy feasts that uh, the Hebrew people were commanded to observe as a way of remembering, as a way of uh, reminding themselves of what they had been through and what God had brought them through. The feasting that was done in the Old Testament was pretty big and pretty significant. And when you get into the New Testament... Food plays as big of a role, if not a bigger role. Jesus' first miracle is a food miracle. Actually, technically, it was a wine miracle, but it's close enough, right? It's, it's an ingestion miracle. 
Jesus showed his approval for dis disreputable and disrespected people like tax collectors and sinners by sitting down with them at table. That's how he did it. Jesus' largest and most public miracle or miracles was taking some loaves and some fish and multiplying them to feed thousands of people, right? This was a sign of who he was. After the resurrection, maybe you've thought of this, maybe you haven't, but after the resurrection, nearly every encounter the people have with the resurrected Jesus has something to do with food. So the two disciples are on the road to Emmaus, and a, and a traveler walks up beside them, and he begins to teach them. And they don't know who this traveler is until they sit down and they break bread with him. And then, poof, they know it's Jesus. Peter is restored after he has denied Jesus on, on, the, on a beach next to a lake as Jesus is cooking him some fish. And in our teaching text for the day, we learn that the first description, the very first description we get of the early church was that they ate together. They ate together. In verse 42, uh, it is listed as one of the three things they did. What did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Like, okay, prayer, yeah. Got it. That's what you do at church. Teaching, yes, understand it. That's what you do in church. Breaking bread? You mean they ate together? It's like a top three important thing for them. And in case you were thinking that that was just a, uh, a passing thing or a mistake that Luke makes, he reiterates it again in verse 46. Luke, the author of this book, says they ate together. They broke bread together. Eating together, feasting together is one, was one of the primary activities of the early church. And I would go so far as to say this morning that eating together in the New Testament is, is a spiritual activity. It's a spiritual activity that is on par with worship and prayer. Okay, good. Uh, but we have a lot of, but here's the thing. When when we, in our culture, and from our perspective, uh, come to this idea of the table, we have some cultural presuppositions, don't we? Now, the table, or, or meals, or sitting down with people, really, in general, in our culture, is something that people just don't do. Before COVID, it was, beco it was becoming less and less, and now, because of COVID, it's just exacerbated. But uh, sharing life together around a table over a good meal is becoming a more and more rare thing in our culture. Americans rarely eat together anymore. American families report eating less than one in five meals together each week. One in five. The average American eats one in five meals in their car, right? Which is showed that one in four Americans, a, a, a solitary event, and uh, another study showed that one in four Americans eats at least one fast food meal every single day. It is these habits around eating that have caused the writer and poet, a guy named Wendell Berry, I've been reading a lot of him lately, um, where it has caused him to describe most eaters in our country as, quote, mere consumers, passive, uncritical, and dependent on the food industrialists. He was pretty worked up when he wrote that. 
Now, Barry has a lot to say about how this way of eating has ramif ne negative ramifications for our lives, for our families, for our communities, and Barry is also a farmer, and so he talks about the negative ways that this has implications for the very land that we live on and around. And you know what? I, I agree with him. <laughs> I agree with him. I think the church and the wider culture has lost something vitally important around this issue of, of light to the world. Last week we talked about how the church is supposed to be a kind of beacon of light to the world. Or another analogy we use is that the church is like uh, this outpost uh, pointing, uh, this outpost of heaven pointing to the realities of God in the middle of a broken world. And one of the ways, I believe, the church is called to be a light to make the kingdom of God visible in our world is, I think, to reclaim the table. And, and of, to reclaim this uh, practice of eating together in the name of Jesus. Not just as a good thing. Not just as something that's kind of helpful or helps me eat a little better. But rather as a spiritual practice that points people to Jesus. Are you with me this morning? Are you with me? All right, thank you. So, all the food lovers in the place can say amen this morning, all right? There, there we go. Now, one of the ways that the church eats together, some call it the Eucharist, earlier in the service, right? In this observance of communion, the Lord's table, some call it the Eucharist. Uh, something uh, we did together in church, something we're going to continue to do together in church. Uh, I think it's a very important practice. It's something that Jesus instructed his people to do. But one of the things that you discover when you read through the Bible is that, the, is that for the early church, that practice of communion was not a little religious ritual that got tacked on to the end of, end of services. Actually, communion was a kind of common meal, a full meal, or what became known as the agape meal or the love feast. Uh, and it was something they observed regularly, and it was an actual meal. Now, you can pick up on this when you read 1 Corinthians 11 specifically. When, uh, but also, uh, it makes sense as well. When Jesus instructs his disciples to do this in remembrance of me uh, in, at the Last Supper, they were eating a full meal together, ate together. Passion says, after supper he took the cup, right? So they ate together. And this is how the early church took it. They assumed that they were called by Jesus to eat a full meal together. It, appe it appears that the early church interpreted Jesus' words there to be this, whenever you have a common meal, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, one of my favorite scholars, a guy named John Howard Yoder, says it this way. He says, the meal Jesus blessed that evening and claimed as his memorial was there the disciples ordinary partaking together of food for the body. Now, this raises some questions for us, doesn't it? Because I don't know if, uh, if many of you are familiar with this idea, and we have kind of ritualized communion in the church, haven't we? We've made it a kind of common thing. It's a ritual, and that ritual is a good thing. 
It is a good thing. I'm not trying to decry it. Remember that the early church was small and they were not in a lot of places. And as this small band of Jesus followers grew, the common meal that they observed together did become more organized. Very early in the history of the church, as early as the first couple of hundred years, we have written records of formal prayers that began to be distributed throughout uh, to different churches throughout the world because they wanted to unify what it was they were doing together. Even though they couldn't be physically together, they wanted to celebrate the Lord's table together in, in, a, in an act of unity. And so this practice of communion began to become more uniform. It began to take on a similar form and structure. Uh, and, and the other thing that happened that made communion become more formalized, more ritualized, is that Christians stopped gathering together daily, right? And they, they gathered together on Sundays on the Lord's Day. And so it became necessary for the church to become to come up with a way of celebrating this common meal together uh, as a community in a kind of formal practice. Now, here's what I'm saying this morning. I think the church in our day needs to continue to observe communion when we gather together on the Lord's Day on Sunday. But my point this morning is that we need to recapture the sacredness of eating meals together as well. We need to recapture it, Uh, of coming to an actual table with actual real live people, right, in the name of Jesus and breaking bread together with joy. I think this is a practice we need to recapture. In our day, the church needs to recapture the spiritual practice of the common meal in the name of Jesus as a way of making, making the kingdom visible, a way of making the kingdom visible in our world, making the kingdom visible in our world. When we eat together in the name of Jesus, we put on display the kingdom of God. You didn't know that, did you? The scriptures make that quite clear, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. In the early church, the way they ate together was a little different than the way that people in their surrounding cultures ate together. Actually, the common meal in the early church, they did three things around this common meal that were drastically different, distinctly different from the culture that they occupied. And those differences showed to their friends and neighbors that what they were doing at that meal was different, was different than what the surrounding culture was doing. Those three uh, markers or distinctions about their meal uh, pointed people to Jesus and to his kingdom. That's what they did. And so, I think these three markers that we pull out from the, uh, from the early church's practice of the common meal are important for us, too. And as we lay them out this morning, I think we can learn something about how important it is that we do these things as well when we gather together to eat. All right? So, that's where we're headed this morning. So, three things, three markers of the early church's common meal. The first is thanksgiving. Now, I'm not talking about turkey and stuffing and, and uh, pumpkin pie, though if you want to uh, bring turkey and stuffing and pumpkin pie, I would love it because it's my favorite meal of the year. We are talking not about the actual uh, holiday of Thanksgiving, but the, the practice of giving thanks to God. Now, notice in, uh, in our teaching text for today, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, the, these early followers of Jesus who are gathered together are described as breaking bread with what? Glad and sincere hearts. 
glad and sincere hearts. It's one of the most insincere person, right? What if somebody you knew was described as a glad and sincere person, right? There's about no better way to describe anyone I've ever met. When we eat together as Christians in the name of Jesus, we are called to do it with gladness, with sincerity, with thankfulness. You, you, know, you see, we are called to cultivate joy in a deep sense of thankfulness whenever we are together. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, is that we don't often do this. We don't often do this. Do, when we eat together, do we eat with an awareness of where two or three are gathered, Jesus has promised to be present with us. This is the problem with our fast food culture, right? It separates us from other people. It makes eating just this act of consumption rather than an act of joy. It doesn't allow us the time to be thankful together. The best type of meal is a slow one, isn't it? The best type of meal is one that takes those two or three hours and the courses just keep coming and the joy just keeps flowing and the goodness just keeps rolling over you. We have lost the art of a good meal in our culture and we have lost the art by extension, I believe, the ability to be thankful. Because when you're thankful, when you eat well, when you express uh, joy and sincerity to God, you, it, it just show, it just it has this incredible way of pointing out all the good stuff in your life, doesn't it? It has all, this way of d- demonstrating all the ways in which God has blessed you and blessed us and blessed people. It's this beautiful practice. And to be truthful, we do it on Thanksgiving, or at least we try to, right? but we don't do it regularly enough. And the early church gathered together as a sign, as a a regular practice in their lives, as a way of demonstrating to both themselves and to the wider culture that they were living with thankfulness, that they were going to live with glad and sincere hearts, even if things were difficult, even even if there was trouble on the horizon, which there often was for the early church, they were going to live with thankfulness. You know, the word Eucharist, the more formal high church word for communion, Eucharist, just means thanksgiving. Just means thanksgiving. And we're called to be a people of thankfulness when we eat together. So that's the first uh, marker of the early church's common meal. The second marker of the early church's common meal uh, is economic sharing. Economic sharing. Now, this, is, this one's uh, a little different than, than thankfulness, isn't it? Scholars estimate that on a, the average member of the early church, the cost to provide a meal for their community was very, very significant. I've seen different numbers from like a week's work or to like up to half a year's work. And here's how communion or this common meal worked in the early church. One household within the church would provide the meal for everybody. And then they would take turns doing that. Right? They would move from, the, 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 the scriptures tell us that they would go from house to house, right? And whatever household they were in, that was the place where they would share the meal. Those who had the ability to, to provide for this meal would do that for their community. And what, what we know is that this was a, was, a, was a significant expense, a significant financial investment in the community by everyone who hosted the meal. And and the question is, why, why were they doing it then? 
Why would they share that significant financial expense with other Christian brothers and sisters? Well, the, tr- the reason they were able to do that was because they knew they were going to be taken care of, because they knew that in, this er- in the early church, no one had need, and that they were going to share possessions, and that the next time they had a common meal, they were going to go to someone else's house, and that they were going to be taken care of. It was, it was this, it, the place where economic sharing took place was at the table, was at the table. And it became this uh, place where Christians put on display the fact that they didn't believe their money belonged to them. They believed it belonged to Jesus and by extension to the community of faith. And so the table became this place where they put on display the fact that they were going to share their, their, they're going to share economically with one another. Now, just uh, for uh, a little bit of context, this is why Paul is so mad at the church in 1 Corinthians 11. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has called out certain members of the church for what he calls eating improperly, taking the Lord's Supper in an improper way. And what he actually does in 1 Corinthians 11 is he accuses the rich people in the church, who apparently had a little bit more time on their hands than the working class people in the church, he accuses them of taking advantage of the poor by showing up to the common meal early and by eating and getting drunk. And then when they show, and then when other people show up, there's not enough food for the other members of the body. You see, what Paul says is you're taking advantage of the generosity of the gift of other members of the church. And for that reason, Paul says, some of you are sick and some of you are even dead. It was not that these people had secret sin in their heart that they brought to. Here's the truth. All of us have sin in our lives when we come to the table, right? The thing that Paul is mad about, the thing that he said some of you are sick and some of you have died about, is that you're taking advantage of one another. You're you're mistreating the very body of Christ. And because of that, there's a judgment that's taking place. They were actively sinning against their brothers and sisters by not living generously by, and by taking advantage of the generosity of others. All of, us, all of this shows us that in the church, economic sharing is one of the most important aspects of what it means to come together as the people of God. To learn not just to eat together, but to literally give our resources to one another. And also, this is equally difficult for us in our day, to receive are very comfortable with receiving. Some of us are very comfortable with giving, but we're not very comfortable with receiving. And some of us are very comfortable with receiving and not very comfortable with giving. And we have to learn to become comfortable with both of those realities in the church. To learn to not just to eat together, but to literally give and receive resource in that place. And when we do that, what we say is that all of this, all that we have, both economically, uh, both, both the finances of our lives and our time, all of it is a gift. None of it belongs to me. It all belongs to God. And I freely give, and I freely share, and I freely receive, not as a sign of anything other than the goodness of God, that my very life itself is a gift, and I freely share it with others. This is what the early church showed by the fact that they obliterated, uh, they didn't obliterate, but they uh, they shared their economies with one another, their personal economies with one another. That's number two. The third thing that marks out the common, that marked out the common meal of the early church is that everyone was welcome. Everyone was welcome. There was no rank or status involved. 
You know, there's a, there's a phrase you hear from time to time in the church, and raise your hand if you've heard this, that uh, everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. Have you ever heard that before? Everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. That's a true statement, but I think a more accurate way of putting this into the frame of the first Christians is to say that everyone was equal around the table. Everyone was equal, equal around the table of Jesus. In the ancient world, the table was a place of hierarchy. In both the Roman and the Hebrew, in the, and the Hebrew world, those, cult, those particular cultures of the first century, there were strict rules about who was not and who was allowed around a table. Different people were barred for different reasons. In the Hebrew cultures, to eat with someone was the primary way that you communicated that you approved of them and that they were your friend. And this is why it's so scandalous for Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners, because it was the way that he communicated that these are my friends. I approve of them. In Roman culture, Roman culture had a very clearly delineated caste system based on how much money you had, and in some cases, how many horses you had. And as I know, there's only about four people who have horses here, so you're all in charge. Um, No. Uh, (laughs) Katie, you're in charge. Uh, but uh, the, the reality is, uh, in, when the Christians began to eat together, eat together, these systems and structures of hierarchies fell away. There was no clean and unclean. Everyone was welcome at the table. Uh, whether you were a slave or a free person, whether you were male or a female, Whatever, uh, whatever state you found yourself in, whether you were a high-class person or a low-class person, all were welcome at the table and all were equal at the table. And by eating together in this way, the early church showed the world that God was no respecter of persons, that, that class or hierarchy or wealth or being a man or being a woman didn't matter, that all were welcome and all were equally loved, all had the same access to the to the to the people of God, and all had the same access to Jesus. And it, and it was in this new kingdom that Jesus was forming that he inaugurated with his death and resurrection that everyone, everyone, everyone could be a son, of, son or daughter of the king, and that that was the only distinction in your life that made any difference. The early church practiced a kind of radical inclusiveness of all people, regardless of social rank or status. Now, in our world, we like to think we live in a classless society here in America, but anybody who's lived here for any amount of time knows that that happens to not be the case, right? We exclude people all of the time. We look down our nose at people all of the time. We separate ourselves in so many different ways. So the only question I have here is, how are you actively going about the business of including people in and around the table in a way that would look radical in our world. Because that's what the early Christians did. All different kinds of people were welcome, no matter how disreputable. And in our time, we need to be about the business of being radically inclusive, bringing people around the table who, well, we might not, under normal circumstances, might not be invited to our table. But because we are all sons and daughters of the king here, right? We live in the time of COVID. Before we go on, I just want to give one little COVID caveat here, right? We live in the time of COVID-19. And there are all kinds of rules and regulations about 
uh, our gathering. And as I said last week, it's up to everyone as individuals to make the best decision they can based on their health or based on their susceptible, how susceptible they are to this virus. But here's what I will say. We can't, we can't lock ourselves away during this time. Whether you need to limit your social interactions to, the, to a certain number of people, I, I would encourage everyone to be as safe as possible. And when, and when we gather together like we're doing today, that we be as responsible as we can for the others that we gather with. Whether that's wearing masks, whether that's social distancing, whatever it is. But here's my encouragement to you. During this time, don't allow yourself to be so shut off from community, what we were talking about last week, that you can't enjoy this type of fellowship with others. And so what my encouragement to you, what I've been reading about uh, over this time, is that a lot of people are just limiting their social circles and saying, hey, look, we're as a group, we're going, we're going to do the best we can to limit our social circles. I'm not going to, you know, go to the disco and dance my heart out every Friday like I really want to. Um, do they still have discos? Is that a thing? <laughs> no. I'm an 80-year-old man in a 36-year-old man's broken-down body. Um, anyways, uh, they're limiting their social circles in such a way that they can still gather together. And so what I'm saying to you is be safe, be responsible, uh, care for the health and safety of other people. But uh, it's important that we uh, not neglect entirely uh, what it means to gather together as the people of God. All right? All right, so that's my caveat. Now, here's how we're going to conclude today. I found a quote from a, uh, a writer that I've been, me and some of my friends have been reading a lot lately. His name's Robert Farrar Capone. Uh, he's Presbyterian, so that will explain some of this that I'm going to read to you today. But he wrote a book that it's all about cooking. He's a pastor. He was a pastor. He wrote a book all about cooking called The Supper of the Lamb. It's really good. You can go get it. But in that book, he gives a kind of prayer of benediction. Um, and I think it's beautiful, and I want to read it for us this morning. So would you stand with me as I read this prayer of benediction about food to all of us? I hope it captures, um, I think it really captures my heart for what I hope our church becomes over the next number of years, all right? If you want this, you can, uh, I'll give you the quote. It's really great. You ready? All right. Oh Lord, refresh our sensibilities. Give us this day our daily taste. Restore to us soups and soups that spoons will not sink in, and sauces which are never the same twice. Raise up among us stews and more gravy than we have bread to blot it with, and casseroles that put starch and substance in our leap in our limp modernity. <laughs> Take away our fear of fat and make us glad for the oil which ran upon Aaron's beard. Give us pasta with a hundred fillings and rice in a thousand variations. Above all, fresh sense of what we men and women. To fast till we come to a refreshed sense of what we have and then dine gratefully on all that comes to hand. Drive far from us, O most bountiful, all creatures of air and darkness. Cast out the demons that possess us. Deliver us from the fear of calories and the bondage of nutrition and set us free once more in our own land where we shall serve thee as thou hast blessed us. With the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Amen. Amen. Not bad, right? Not bad. So, now that you're standing, let's pray together as we go. Father, we love you. 
And we thank you that you've given us this gift of the spiritual practice of the common meal and of eating together. We pray that we would recapture your heart for the common meal, that we would recapture your heart for eating well in this world uh, to to your praise and to your blessing, God. We pray that you would make us people who commune, would fill our hearts with joy, that you would fill our hearts with love and life, and that you would make us people who communicate the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ with everything we say, do, and eat this week. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. before you go, uh, just remember that we don't have, we didn't receive offering today, so if you brought a gift, you can place it in the box on your way out. Uh, go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks.